Hello everyone, and yes, it's your girl, the tea teacher. Thank you so much for joining me this morning for this wonderful book review podcast. And today, I am doing The Amazing Group, The Temptations. Now, mind you, I have a Temptations page on Facebook, and we have 22K members for The Temptations, so I am so happy and so um ecstatic about the group but today we're going to do the book called the temptations by otis williams now y'all otis williams was the founder of the temptations and he is an original temptations plus he is the last original temptations so we want to give a great shout out to otis williams from my love to yours and everyone else. So let's jump right into this. Okay. Otis Williams. He was born October 30th, 1941. To the parents of Otis Miles and Hazel Louise Williams. And as he calls her Hayes. Now he said in his book that he didn't want for anything. At all. At all. He didn't want for anything. And, you know, I guess back then most kids did. But, you know, he didn't. He didn't want for anything. And he lived in Texarkana. At this time. And, you know how young boys are. They... They play in school and and do things like that. But I think he he wanted to sing. He did. He wanted to sing. And, and, and he had a stepfather that he said that did an amazing job as being his father. Even though he had a real father, his real father wasn't there. And I take it he was a deacon in the church. <laughs> Maybe he didn't want nobody to know. That he had a child out of wedlock. And he was the deacon. But he saw him every Sunday at church. So it wasn't like he didn't see his real father. He did. But he said he had an amazing stepfather. An amazing stepfather. And that's because a lot of folks don't have amazing stepfathers. But he did. But before I tell you his stepfather's name. His dad has a few nicknames out there. Sonny One or Birdhead was his father's um, nickname, Otis Miles' nickname. And so Otis Williams, about 10 or 11, um, that's at the time where his mother brought him from Texarkana to Detroit. From, you know, just to live with her and his stepfather. And his stepfather's name was Edgar Little. Texarkana was about 800 miles or so from Detroit. But they were like two different planets, as Otis says. All the way, two different planets. And he had three grandparents. Now, I'm not going to give you their full complete name. But I'm going to give you their first name. Lucinda. Della. Frank. Those are the three grandparents. And he said his grandparents were strict. He said they was God-fearing people. 
God bearing people. That means you went to church every time the doors was open. <laughs> you stayed there late doing the services and everything. Everything. And at this time, when his mom had him, she was 16 years old. She was a very young, very, very young lady when she had um, Otis. And she was born in 1899 in Hope, Arkansas. Wow. 1899. That is Jesus Christ. That is a year that us young people will never get to see at all. At all. That's just an amazing thing. But as Otis is in school, he starts to notice girls. He said women were very beautiful to him, like Faye Adams. (laughs) that's in his own words quote Otis Williams he said beautiful women like Faye Adams hey and then he said and these were and still are my very best friends my brother my brothers all parties to packed that will say they would never leave the group. They said they would never leave the group. And I'm trying to give you a little information beforehand before I get really deep into the review. So he's talking about David Ruffin, Eddie Kendricks, Melvin Franklin, Paul Williams, and of course himself, Otis Williams. So... In the moment, I think, you know, when you when you go to coming up and you, you go to Detroit and it's like every street corner, there's someone singing, playing, dancing, tap dancing, mimes or whatever you want to call them, doing things. You're like, oh my God, hey, that's what I want to do. That's neat. And so when he went to the Apollo, he said the adrenaline was so high, it felt like he was on drugs. His adrenaline was that high. And this was at the Apollo in 1966, the Copacabana in 1967. And maybe the English style, excuse me, television show in 1963. So in all those dates I just named, he said, hey, it was an adrenaline that he couldn't even explain but the only words that he can explain about explain it was his drug the drugs it was that that potent well Otis had siblings he had half siblings he had a half sister he had a half brother by his stepdad and his mom so Otis was the oldest all he was the oldest and so you know how the older siblings, when they have younger siblings, if they want to go somewhere back then, and even now, the parents, especially the mother, because she would be the one to be at home the most while the dad's out working, she would make you take them younger siblings right along with you. Okay? You can't go nowhere. Uh-uh. Take them with you. They want to go to the park too. Well, come on. you got your choice. To- so you had to take Excuse me, you had to take your younger siblings everywhere you go. But at some point in time, 
Otis was like, Otis said this, quote, he had to schedule a few of after school um, regimens or after school's um, adult things with some young ladies or a few of uh, after school activities, he said that his he couldn't take Alan, and Alan was his step, his half brother. He couldn't take Alan with him. Not at all. So y'all let your minds run free. When I quote this again, he said that he had scheduled some after school activities <laughs> with some young ladies, and Alan couldn't go. Now at this time, Alan um, went with him everywhere he went. It doesn't say too much about the half sister going places with him, but I do know that Alan went with him everywhere. And he wanted to go play basketball or hang with his friends. He had to take Alan with him, and Alan was in the stroller. And he'll push the stroller on the side, I guess where the basketball course was at. And long as he knew that Alan was okay, he wouldn't kidnap, hurt, he could see him, hey, he wouldn't worry about Alan. <laughs> see, and I'm the youngest other family. So I know how you have to take the younger sibling with you. You had to. It's crazy. But also when oldest got older, you know, little teenagers, you know, young teenager, young boys, he had a crush on a young lady named Mrs. Wright. He really didn't give her name too much in the um, in his book, but he gave enough information to let us know, hey, that's who he liked. And so he had friends in school, which was Calvin, one of his good friends, and he had a temper, he said, fly off at the handle. He had Joe Ratliff, which they called Lucky. He didn't speak too much about him either. But at the age of 13, he met James Bowman, and they called him Red. And at this time, which was 1950s, Race Records was the one of the recording studios back in those days that the black people recorded on. Now let's let's stop right here and let me put this little side note in. Now he did say that back in those days, his grandparents believed in home remedies. Yes, they did. They believed in in home remedies. They believe in things that um, the home remedies as well as the slave uh, people believed in. You know, um, they didn't take it, you know, doctors. They wouldn't doctors for back then for blacks. So they had to use roots and herbs and teas and and uh, incantations back in those days. And he did say some of his family members believed in voodoo. They did some work. And he said that he was kind of hectic about women because his um, some of his family members back in those days said that you can take a man's clothes, bury it. You can take some hair and make a man do anything you want to. So his family believed in that. His family believed in those type of things. But they also believed in God. That's what he said in his book. Hey, you know, my 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 family on my mother's side was from Aquila, Mississippi, so you know, that's what they believed in. But oldest still wanted to sing. He said there was a lot of gangs back in that time. He said it was gangs everywhere. 
everywhere. And he said certain parts of Detroit you knew you couldn't go into because they would be harassing you. And he said it would be days that he will um, go outside of his school because school was over with and they'll be waiting to catch him, waiting to get him. And I bet you he was nervous. I bet you he was scared. But you know what? Hey, you had to do what you had to do. Break and run. Run as fast as you can. Feet don't fail me now. Lord, take the wheel because I got to get home. Because if not, they was going to get him. They wanted to recruit him. And the words that he said, they that he heard them say was, get him. I'm like, oh, this phew, I would have been gone. Now, you ain't going to get me today. <laughs> uh-uh. Uh-uh. And I bet you back in those times, even now in these bigger cities, there's a lot of gangs. Now, days, I'm assuming they don't try to make you join. But back in those days, Otis said they made you join. They they taunted you. They harassed you. They beat you up until you had to choose what side you was going to be on. Wow, that is crazy. Because I've been like, look, I can't keep doing this. This is too much. But he said eventually he did join. Eventually he did. And he said after a while, hey, he wanted to focus on singing. And Otis had a voice. A wonderful voice. But then, before this part took place, he said as a kid, there was a house. An abandoned house. And he said that it was haunted. And the kids, he said, as being a kid, they used to run around the house. You know how children do. Run around the house, and but not go into it. I dare you to go. No, I dare you to go. Uh-uh, uh-uh. But nobody never went in. But he said that's where they found a lot of bodies um, in the house. The people, you know... They um, got killed because of drugs or overdosed or, you know, murder for passion or passion out of murder or however you want to say it. But nobody never went to the house. They never did. But one night he was walking home. (laughs) And he said that he was up under a stop that the lights that shine down, you know, street lights and he said he turned around because he heard something behind him and I'm just paraphrasing that he heard something behind him he turns around there's a tall man no head and it scared him he didn't know what to do he, he was so paralyzed that he could not move at all y'all I I think I would have just lost all bodily um, fluids died came back to life re-died again came back to life I don't know that was that was, that's terrifying but he's all of a sudden that that ghost, that man with no head, just shot up towards that abandoned house. And I guess at that time his body become unparalyzed and hopefully he ran. Hopefully he did. But that's crazy because I'm like, oh Lord. But then his mom and dad, I guess the next day or two, said that it was a man that got killed on the railroad tracks. But he didn't go into full detail about that. He just said this what his mom and dad had said. But I'm like, ooh, you know, that's crazy. That is crazy. So time goes on, and, and you know, like I said, he wants to do in music, and he loved to draw. 
Yes, he did. He loved to draw. And it was, he knew how to draw, but he also, he was a singer. <laughs> he was a singer. He knew what he wanted to do and he, and he took it serious. I mean, serious. And to me, that's good. More than ever. Well, and like he said, music was consuming more time, becoming a bigger part of his life. And suddenly, he said he was listening to music on the radio in different ways. And back then, black radio stations, you could barely, barely, rarely hear them clearly on the radio because they was real fainted because why? They didn't want the black music to come out. And so he picked out different harmonies and different parts of everybody singing a particular tones and riffs. Hey, he was trying to get his way in there no matter what. And at this time, he had a little group, Herbie, Otis, Eddie. And then he said he could remember the fifth guy. But Herbie Murphy was the lead singer. And this was back in 1956. I don't know. You know, I wish I could have been back in those days to see those groups. It would, I bet you it was amazing. Amazing to see what all he saw and what all they did. Out of this world. Out of this world. You know, and he saw Frankie Avalon as a teenager. He, they adored Frankie. The younger people adored Frankie. You had Chuck Berry. You had the Nightcaps. You had the Royal Jokers. So things like that you had. You named them. And he said, Hayes and my Uncle Frank will have to come into the theater and go row by row looking for him because he wouldn't come out. He wanted to see the artists. He wanted to hear their music. He wanted to pick up on what they had. He was determined to sing. And that's what he did. He said... My mind was made up. I started thinking about how it would be to have fans. One day, I happened to be hanging around the back of Fox, of the Fox, when the Cadillacs came out of the garage door. One of them was singing something for a young girl, and she instantly asked him. <laughs> now, this kind of, this made me laugh, because she asked him, why Why do you have a pimple on your face? And I guess this irritated him, baby, because he said, angrily, he snapped, because I ain't getting enough cuckoo. That's what he said. The poor girl looked crushed, and my bubble bursted. Now, if I would have heard that, <laughs> right? This man trying to sing you a love song. He down there just a singing, uh, and only thing you can think about is the pimple on his face face wow that was crazy y'all and then he goes on to say the walk was no big deal none of us had cars back in them days Uh uh-uh they didn't so they had to walk everywhere walking gave them the opportunity to meet more young ladies Uh uh-huh they look at them young ladies trying to get a little tapitates trying to get them girls to come and watch them sing The more people you meet, the more people you get on your side. 
They'd be strolling along, chewing the fat, talking about nothing in particular until they see a fine girl. And then that's when it's be trying to whistle at them, trying to call their names and everything. Throw them little slick lines. It didn't work. It didn't work at all. Mm-mm. Not at all. But at this point, he had a friend named Eddie. And it's not the Eddie Kendricks. And he wanted to see this girl. And she lived on the wrong side of the tracks. The rough side with the bad gangs. And so they knew they just couldn't walk to the uh, her up to her door without being seen. Because these gangs, like I told you before, wanted to recruit them. Wanted them in their game. And so they had to run up to the deal and peek around the corner. And at this point, the spot where she lived at is now called the Rosa Park Boulevard. And it runs from northwest end of Detroit, south to the Detroit River. Now this place y'all it was gang members it was hustlers players at the time he was living on cluster on Detroit's north end and this place you won't want to even go to so you know they had to run and hide so when they peeked around that corner didn't see nobody standing out there they jetted like they was on fire up to that girl's door and knocked on her door because they knew that hey they wasn't going to be able to make it and when the coast was clear like I told you they took off and they dashed up there running inside all in about two seconds <laughs> about two seconds y'all so as he got serious about the singing group he become more interested in perfecting his image now that's like his clothes his hair so he had to get his style together he had to get his clothes right he had to get that look of what he wanted people to notice him or remember him he thought it was cool back in the mid 50s that required a process and y'all know what a process is at 14 or 15 he got his first process and processes were popular because they looked sharp and were easy to manage now that all that processing is ain't nothing today but a perm. Get you a just for me, a dark and lovely, a cream of nature. That's your process in a box. But back then, it took so many steps just to get your hair processed. Just to get it done. It was mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. so he goes on, they join, he has a group that he has. He has him and the Siberians. That's who his group was. It was Otis Williams and the Siberians. And they he wrote a song. Okay. <clears throat> and he got the hit song or got the song from the Western movies. At this point, like I said before, the group was called Otis and the Siberians. And they made something of a name for themselves. Singing and little hop singing hops around the town. That means like little bitty uh, teenage spots around the town. So they, excuse me, they was ready. And so in the group of the Siberians, it was 
uh, Al, James Crawford, or Pee Wee, Arthur Watson, and Plain. He was the lead singer. So, you know, they didn't think nobody really listened to them. They was hoping that people did listen, but the bigger head people would have listened because they wanted their names to get out there. So, one day, back in 1958, he was standing at his kitchen sink washing the dishes, you know, doing his chores like they do or we still do after school and listening to the radio. It was turned to the, the, the Detroit's biggest R&B station. WCHB and Jerkin Joe Howard was on. Jerkin Joe was one of those snappy jive talking jockeys with a high pitched voice who did these ear catching rips between the records. Mr. Howard said, if anybody knows Otis William of the Siberians, please have him to contact me and give his information. Now, I bet you oldest was like, uh-huh, and was listening and said, oh, snap, what? <laughs> it probably took a little minute for him to grasp that because he wasn't thinking that a radio station was going to be contacting him or looking for him. So while he's washing his dishes, a dish slipped out of his hand, hit the bottom of the sink because he was, he was stunned. He didn't know what to do. He was lost for words. His mind was lost. He, he couldn't even comprehend. He said, oh, no. Not me. I've heard something. They weren't talking about me. It's another, it must be another Otis Williams. It took him a few minutes later, though. He announced it again. At that time, he dropped them dishes and ran to that phone. He was like, oh, no, you don't got to tell me twice. They talking about me. Leaving a trail of white suds behind him, he dialed the number. I'll remember for the rest of my life, he said. This is Otis I just heard my name, and I'm calling in response. Shoot, Otis jumped on that phone in a heartbeat. He forgot about his dishes. <laughs> he was famous. He saw uh-uh, Otis Williams and the Siberians. He was ready. Hello? <laughs> Whoever answered the phone put Bill Williams on the line, and no, no relations. Williams was another big jockey at that time, uh, at the WCHB and he was well known for producing local groups. See in Detroit like I told you before Otis Williams said there were so many people and so many groups singing here and there on every street corner and they could sing and he used to lay up in his bed at night with the windows open listening to people sing so he was ready he had a real hot show that he always opened up with a song called Big Bad Train. Williams said to me, man, can you get the guys together and get up here? See, now he wants him to hurry up. Let's get it because he wants to record. Otis Williams and the Siberians, they wanted them to come up there where they was at. That night, they wanted to record that night. And you know, he probably had so much stuff running through his mind because they loved that song. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Picos, kids. But if I'm not, forgive me on that. But he couldn't believe it. Stardom was right around the corner. And they was going to make a record. It was finally happening. 
So you know him. He called the guys and arranged to meet at his friend Brian's house. Hey, he was ready to go on to it. He was ready. And he was, they was wanting people around Detroit to hear them. He was looking to make a killing in the music business. And he was ready. Around that time, you know, Bill Williams came, became their manager on a part-time basis. Because I still believe, well, I believe they were still in school, so they had to be part-time. They couldn't do no full-time things back in those days because they was in school. And you know families back in those days, and still even now, but mostly back then, they was pondering on education. You got to, because back in those days, black people didn't have as much. I'm not saying we was per, poor, dirt, dirt, dirt poor, or just didn't have anything we did. I'm just saying that education, you had to have because you couldn't get no good job back in those days without no education. So you had to. So during the brief period, they was with him. They met and worked with Milton Jenkins. That was another manager back then. Milton was an interesting character, Otis said. He must have been in his early 30s. Milton was a nice looking man with a high uh, receding hairline. So he must have not had a forehead. He must have had a five head. (laughs) Don't know. (laughs) But that's what he did. That's what he did. He had that. And so he said he was a sharp dresser. He drove a Cadillac convertible. And you know, all the women was after that. He had that. He said, dang, Milton. Isn't your arm ever going to come out that cast? I guess Milton had a cast on his arm every time he was seen. But Milton wasn't even phasing that. They couldn't even p- 